0: Welcome to In the Wake with Whitley. Here on this podcast, we cover mental health, life lessons, mindset growth, and tons of storytelling. Together, we'll laugh, we'll cry, and everything in between. I'm your host, Whitley Rogers. I'm a certified life coach and mental health advocate. I'm also a survivor of sexual and mental abuse. I'm here to open up those conversations that are normally uncomfortable or hush hush in society. Keep listening for bits and pieces of my personal journey and insights along with other interviewees. All right. I'm here this week with a new guest, Dr. Margaret Rutherford. I have been a huge fan of her podcast. I've been listening for probably years now and she just wrote a new book. So that's why she's here with us today to talk about that. And I am honored that she has taken the time out of her day to be here. So hi, how are you?
1: Hey Whitley, I'm doing great. I'm doing great. And we can talk about the podcast too. You know, (laughs) I have been doing that a long time. It'll be four years in October, which I really cannot believe. First started a podcast, of course, I'd only listened to a couple of others. I'm kind of a dive in the deep end kind of person. (laughs) And I didn't realize that most podcasts have seasons. I just went and went and went and went and finally last (laughs) Christmas, I said, whew, I'm going to take a break. So we took a two-week break, but we have not had a break in almost four years except for that two weeks. So there's a lot of episodes there.
0: There are. They are Great quality, too. I can vouch for you on that.
1: Thank you. Thank you. So
0: do you want to introduce yourself a little bit? Who are you and what's your story?
1: Who am I? I'm a clinical psychologist. My name is Margaret Rutherford, and I got started. Actually, I came to psychology in sort of an odd way in that I was actually a jingle singer, a professional vocalist in my 20s and I loved it. I loved music. I loved performing, but gradually it began to be something that I realized I didn't want to do the rest of my life. So I'd heard about this thing called music therapy and I put all the money down I had in the world (laughs) on my first year at SMU, Southern Methodist University in Dallas, and began getting a music therapy degree. But in the process of that, I actually interned in a psych hospital and thought, no, 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 this is what I want to do. I had gotten a lot of therapy because my life was pretty chaotic back then and I needed therapy. Mm -hmm. And so I thought, I really want to do this. And lo and behold, I got in. I think I was a bit of a curiosity, actually. Here's this professional singer who wants to be (laughs) a psychologist. I've been doing that now for, gosh, I got degreed in 1993 and I have absolutely loved it. I did not start blogging or podcasting because I was trying to really avoid being a therapist. I still have a very full practice, but I wanted to extend the walls of my practice because of the stigma of mental health treatment. And I felt like so many people didn't really understand what therapy was or what a psychologist like me might actually think or sound like. I got back behind a microphone and started the podcast (laughs) called The Self-Work Podcast. And then we can talk about the book in a second. I'm kind of a storyteller, Whitley, if you know. So there's a little story behind that too, but i I'm a mother. I have one son who's 26, who lives in Los Angeles right now and works for SpaceX. And then my husband and I have been married 30 years in September. So that's who I am, I guess.
0: Awesome. I love it. Congratulations with you and your husband. That's
1: amazing. Thank you. We were going to go to New Zealand, but that didn't (laughs) go (laughs)
0: <laughs> maybe next year.
1: Well, or when they open the country back up, but right. you know, we'll, we'll do something to celebrate. We'll have some champagne and do something. It's been a great 30 years. Most of it, as my husband would say, he's been mostly happy all during marriage.
0: <laughs> I love that. So yeah, let's talk about your book a little bit.
1: Sure, of course. I started, like I said, blogging in 2012. The podcast didn't start till 2016. And I began writing about mental health issues. I actually started it only writing about empty nest. It was right after mm. my son left and he and I were very close. We still are very close, but that was a difficult move for me. And I thought, well, let me write about what I'm going through and what I'm processing and all this kind of thing. And But then I, I started itching to write about mental health and started a new website, again, has the original name of DrMargaretRutherford.com. And back in April of 2014, I was thinking about some people that I had treated through the years that eventually I knew that they were depressed. It didn't take long, but it took some digging. They were people who could not really express painful emotion very well, if at all at first. And they looked bright and successful and cheery and productive and engaged. And yet, I understood that underneath that was a lot of despair and loneliness and these painful feelings that had just never been connected with because it was not safe to connect with them. So I started thinking about those people and how the work with them is very different from someone with classic depression in that when someone's classically depressed, they're usually very isolative. They don't engage anymore. They could be angry or sad or melancholy, but they basically pulled back from their lives because Mm -hmm. that's the nature of classic depression. And so your work with them is to try to help them, of course, understand things, but also begin to re-engage, rediscover their vitality. With these folks, the direction of the work was very, very different. The direction of the work was more going inward because they didn't know how to really connect. And they looked, like I said, they looked quite engaged and successful mm-hmm. and productive, but they really, maybe some of them could not even name or identify feelings that, that had been born many, many years before. They'd gotten so good at compartmentalizing things and just sticking painful emotions back in a closet somewhere where they were just gathering dust. And so I started writing about these people, and I came up with this title, The Perfectly Hidden Depressed Person, Are You One? Well, Whitley, at that point, if I got like 50 likes or a few shares, I was ecstatic, right? It was like, yeah. <laughs> and this went viral. Then I was writing for the Huffington Post back then, or now it's called HuffPost. And I turned it into them and I had forgotten that I had left my email on the bottom of the post. It didn't take 24 hours before my email was just loaded. Hundreds of emails came in and I realized, wow, this is something. So the curious part of me decided I wanted to look into it more and I looked for popular books on depression and perfectionism. And I didn't really find many. I found, of course, Dr. Brené Brown's work, which is, has only grown in intensity and importance since I began learning about it. Then there was a book called I Don't Want to Talk About It by Terence Real. but it was in print. It's a wonderful book. I'd highly recommend it. So there were her books and that book. The rest of them were sort of workbooks, like if you're perfectionistic, this is what you do to fix it. But what I was so interested in was the why. And I didn't find anybody but just clinical researchers who were trying to look into the why. So I've never wanted to write a book. (laughs) I loved blogging, but I was quite content as a therapist in Fayetteville, Arkansas. And I got some encouragement from some people who were already authors that I should write about it. So it was a very long journey. I found an agent, and it took a couple of years to find a publisher who would agree to publish it. But now that was New Harbinger Publications out of California. And I wrote that post in April of 2014. In November of 2019, it became a book. Wow. So I learned so much. <laughs> Gosh, so, so much.
0: Wow. I love the background.
1: The book found me. The topic found me. Now, I will admit that it had a certain amount of poignancy for me as well. Although, yes, I've been a perfectionist, but depression has not been my issue. Anxiety has been my issue. Mm. But my mother was very depressed and she was very perfectionistic. In fact, she had some traits of OCD. So, you know, I guess we're all supposed to write about our mothers. (laughs) 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 I guess I did. She would not be particularly happy about that, by the way. (laughs) I have been very, very pleased that the topic has seemed to catch a lot of people's attention. The book is, it's not a New York Times bestseller, but I'm an unknown author. And in fact, some of the publishers that turned it down said, well, we don't think the book is going to be bought because if people are hiding, why would they buy a book? Right. Anyway, I had to kind of, I argued with them about that a little, but anyway, New Harbinger obviously felt like it would be bought and they have been a wonderful, wonderful publisher to work with.
0: That's so good to hear so what is perfectly hidden depression? And further, how is it different from classic depression or smiling depression?
1: Smiling depression, or it's also called high-functioning depression. I mean, I think I've already explained a little bit how it's different from classic depression right? in that the energy work, the direction of the work is very, very different. And as a therapist, you have to be attuned. These folks are not going to walk in your office and say, well, I'm depressed. They're going to walk in your office and say, I don't really know why I'm here. I feel kind of..." of silly, but I can't sleep or I'm struggling with an eating disorder or I can't seem to stop worrying or something like that. They're going to talk about anxiety if they talk about anything. So the work is different like that, but Smiling depression or high-functioning depression, I think, is one level of this kind of depression. The difference is people with high-functioning or smiling depression know they're depressed. They've either been diagnosed with depression or they are aware that they're depressed. They're aware that they just don't feel good. They don't feel like themselves. They may have talked to their friends about it. They may be on medication for it, but they're the kind of people who simply say, I'm still going to put a smile on my face and I'm not going to put it on Facebook that I'm depressed. I know it. My friends know it. My family knows it. But I still want to fight it in the way that I need to fight it. I certainly don't want anyone walking away from hearing me say, well, is she like saying something negative about people with classic depression that we're a bunch of whiners? Or, mm-hmm. And no, not at all. There are plenty of people with depression that get up in the morning, go to jobs, exercise, take their meds, fight off the feelings of sadness and lack of self-worth. And they do an admirable job of doing that because especially if your depression is chronic, that is a full-time job. These folks who may identify, and again, depression is not a diagnosis. It's what I call a syndrome. Probably the most identifiable syndrome is codependence. That's a syndrome a lot of people talk about. It's a group of behaviors and beliefs that tend to fall together. Actually, codependency was defined by these people who sat around back in the 40s or 50s, something like that, or 60s, I think, actually, and said, what do we all have in common? Those of us who are trying to love alcoholics, what do we all have in common? That became the syndrome of codependence. It's used a lot more more loosely now, but that's how it came into the vernacular at first. Perfectly hidden depression is really people who would deny that they're depressed. They might even deny they're perfectionistic because basically they would say nothing I ever do is perfect, but they're seen as perfectionist by other people. It's the direction of the work. It's the clarity with which someone understands what kind of mood they're in or what kind of disorder they may have. Also something, again, not a diagnosis, but it's made up of these traits as I see them that many of them are very honorable traits. In fact, in moderation, they are wonderful. There's nothing wrong with being perfectionistic if it's about striving for excellence if it's about really wanting to accomplish and accomplish well. There's absolutely nothing wrong with that. But there's a line that's drawn. And actually, I've studied the research of people who are looking into this kind of depression. And there's definite evidence, there's a certain kind of perfectionism that can lead to a very dangerous situation, can in fact, into suicidality. We're trying to make distinct those differences and alert both mental health professionals and the general public to the idea that someone can present as just great, but actually underneath what's masked is this despair and loneliness that I'm calling perfectly hidden depression.
0: Wow, that is so interesting.
1: So you mentioned
0: perfectionism a few times. How does perfectionism intersect and really play a part in perfectly hidden depression?
1: Well, the first trait that I name as one of the 10 traits of the syndrome of perfectly hidden depression is perfectionism, but it also has another part of it. It's not just perfectionism. If you're a perfectionist, you tend to, and it's healthy perfectionism, you tend to still see things you're doing as a process. And if it's something that you're proud of, or even something where you make a mistake and you may fail, you can kind of go, well, you know, I learned something in that process. What did I learn? And how do I want to change what I do in the future so that I accomplish what I really want to? Someone with the kind of perfectionism that I'm talking about is someone who also has a very internal shaming voice that's mm-hmm. constant, 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 and they are striving to overcome that shameful voice. It could be their own voice, it could be someone's voice from the past, not like in hallucinatory kind right, of. Things, right, right. You just have this editorializing going on in your head all the time in the background that pushes and shoves and says you're, you're not doing enough. This is bad. You aren't trying hard enough. You'll never succeed. And so you think this is success, but it's not. Anybody could do this. And so it's this perfectionism that's also coupled with this constant critical shaming voice.
0: That is So interesting. So how does gratitude play a role in those who identify with perfectly hidden depression?
1: We could quickly go through the 10 traits of the syndrome. Would that be? Yes. Gratitude is kind of a part of one of those, and maybe it would really help to the listeners to understand. Yes, Um, let's do that. I'm going to go fairly quickly through these because they're very interrelated, but that's what a syndrome is. They're all interrelated. So we've already talked about the first one, being highly perfectionistic and having a constant critical shaming inner voice. The second one is that you demonstrate a heightened or excessive sense of responsibility. These are people who they always have their hands up in the air. They're always volunteering. They think if anybody's going to do it, I should do it because I want to and I know I've had experience, but they don't believe in taking anything off their plate. It's like their plate gets higher and higher. Mm -hmm. they deem that being responsible. The third is they detach from painful emotions by staying in their head and then actively shutting them off. These people are over analyzers. I've had people tell me that they've read the book and how much they've enjoyed it, which of course that makes me feel good. But then I say, so how did you like the exercises? Mm -hmm. And the exercises are a totally different kind of activity than just reading and understanding conceptually about the syndrome. And they'll look at me, Whitley, and they'll go, oh, I really didn't have time to do those. Or, they just seem kind of a little too hard or, oh, I'm going to get to those. <laughs> and so my response is, well, you're doing what you love to do, which is to stay in your head and not really attend to emotions because you don't know how. Right. The fourth is a worry and need to control yourself and your environment. These people are the people that get into a cycle of, okay, I'm worried about it. Let's say their parents are older and someone needs to care for them. They'll say, well, I'll do that. You know, or, I'll manage it because if I'm doing it, then I know it gets done and I won't worry about it. But the problem is then that cycle never ends because again, yeah. they it heightens its responsibility. So they're responsible for more and more and more. They worry more and more about Is it really getting done well? And so worry and a sense of responsibility really interrelate. There's an intense focus on tasks using accomplishment to feel valuable. These are not people who can tell you freely what people like about them. They will tend to say, well... When I reach this goal or when I accomplish this, then I will feel good, except once it's accomplished, it becomes something that's in the past and that they have to focus on the next accomplishment and the next accomplishment. Some of this has to do with a kind of perfectionism that we can get into if you want to. That's the more dangerous kind of perfectionism. Yes. And it's about constantly feeling like you have meet the expectations of others. Mm -hmm. Okay, we're about halfway through. You focus on the well-being of others, but don't allow them into your inner world. These are folks that are very good friends. They are the first people that are at your door. If something happens, they actually do useful things. They truly and sincerely care about their friends, but they don't let anybody really know who they are. No one knows their struggles. Yes. It would be the kind of... Yes, exactly. And their friend may say, you know, I never hear about you talking about your mm-hmm. struggles. And they'll say, oh, if I had any, I'd tell you. But they wouldn't. Right. The next one is they discount personal hurt or sorrow and struggle with self-compassion. These are folks that will sit on my couch and as I try to get them to connect with any kind of loss or grief or trauma or sadness they have in their life, they'll say, I have so many blessings. I'm so grateful. I'm just not going to complain. I don't have any right mm-hmm. to complain. And so they really discount anything that they've been through as just not important enough to pay attention to. They have an accompanying mental health issue, or they may, such as an eating disorder, anxiety disorder, OCD, or addiction. The reason why this was important is because I didn't want anyone to think that I was saying, okay, so if you identify with perfectly hidden depression, you don't have to worry about anything else. You just need to solve that because you actually may have developed over time disorders that have to do with control or lack of control or feeling not in control. Mm -hmm. And that's what an eating disorder is all about. That's what anxiety disorders are typically about. That's what addictions can be about because you're needing to escape, right? Yes. So there may be some other kinds of things going on that need your attention just as much as perfectly hidden depression does. We've already touched on this one. Believe strongly in counting your blessings as the foundation of well-being. In fact, often a lot of people of faith have reached out to me and said, but I am failing my faith if I complain, if I talk about my life as something that's troubled, my faith isn't strong enough. And so, and other people who don't necessarily have faith as the center of their being also can struggle with this, that not realizing that even blessings have their underbellies, even things that are wonderful. And if you have the amount of kids you want, which is, I don't know, two, three, four, the larger the number, you may feel, I was just so blessed or people who want children who can, can't have them. But, you know, having four children means for homework assignments, for soccer games, for piano mm-hmm. <laughs> lessons, for this, for that. So it also can be difficult. And then the last one is they may enjoy success within a professional structure, but struggle with emotional intimacy and in relationships. What this means is that they can attract someone and be partnered with someone who really can see them and can see that they're not ever talking about things that are troubling to them. And in fact, some of those people have written me and said, I think my wife or my husband is this kind of person and how do I approach them? So that's certainly a possibility. But they also may have attracted people who really wanted someone who over who really wanted someone who would take all the responsibility, maybe someone who's narcissistic and really wanted someone who would do all the work in the relationship. So their relationships can be troubled. But again, with structure, I mean, workplaces adore perfectionists, <laughs> mm-hmm. somebody who you can always count on, someone who gets in the assignment a week ahead of time, someone who now obviously if they're perfectionist because they other people in the workplace, that's not so great. But just having someone you can always count on is rewarded. So they're often very, very successful professionally, but have this emptiness in their hopefully intimate relationships. Hmm. So that's the 10 traits.
0: Thank you for sharing those. That is very, very insightful. It does sound like it's a lot of control factors.
1: Yes, it is very muchly so. And the interesting thing to me, of course, I have been very lucky and and honored to work with people who, you know, I started writing about this in blog posts because I was trying to figure out what is this and <laughs> and why does this exist? And how do you get there? And the more I wrote, the more people wrote to me and said, I'd like to come in to see you because I think this is my issue. And it's not my whole practice, but certainly I've had a lot of people come in and say, I either listened to your podcast or I read a blog post and I do think this may be me. And what I watch, Whitley, is Their struggle to, a good way of thinking about it is, and I talk about this in the book, is, I don't know if you've ever played Jenga, but you're trying to remove a piece without the whole structure falling down. And really, especially initially, that's what this work is like with someone who identifies with perfectly hidden depression. They're trying to find the piece that they can actually get out and look at, whether it's a specific memory, whether it's a specific emotion they've never connected with, whether it's their loneliness, whether it's maybe learning how to not be quite so responsible, uber responsible. This is one of the stories in the book, but I was working with this woman and she said, I'm determined to go to the next meeting, I don't know, a club meeting of some kind, and I'm not going to raise my hand for anything. And she was so proud of herself when she left the meeting. She said, oh, I did great because I didn't volunteer for anything. And then she got in her car and she had this immediate guilt response. Like, I'm no busier than any of those other people, and I should have raised my hand. She grew very uncomfortable with the idea that she'd not, quote unquote, taken responsibility. This is very much like therapy in general. You have to try to change your behavior while also managing how scary it can feel to change.
0: Right. The gratitude piece. Do you feel like it's a lot of guilt of identifying or saying those struggles out loud that, they have so many blessings, so much to be grateful for.
1: Yes, it's definitely that. Again, your listeners may be listening as, what is she dissing gratitude? (laughs) (laughs) No, I'm not at all. I'm very grateful. Myself, I have I had many blessings throughout my life, and yet what I'm trying to say is John kabat Zen, who I admire, and talks about mindfulness and meditation so much. He uses the term rigid positivity. Yes, because you can just stay so rigidly in the everything's great, and I don't want to focus on anything bad or sad or makes me angry because I'm not being appreciative enough. That is just as dangerous as someone who's constantly negative, really? constantly sad, and who's constantly looking for their victimization in, in their okay. lives. There's a balance and often use the idea of the glass is half full and half empty by definition. So I think healthier people, certainly I hope that I do, most often stay in the glass half full part. But part of mental health is also to be able to connect with what hurts or what's disappointing or what you're right. afraid of and connect with it, feel those feelings, and then go back into the half that's more full. Yeah. Recognize and connect with and understand and respect that you have some hardship in your life. We all do. Some of the most unhappy people I've ever treated are the most successful and wealthy, actually. You can say, well, if I had $10,000, I wouldn't be depressed. or 100,000 or whatever it is, and maybe you wouldn't. We all have things that have hurt us through the years. And you don't want to carry those around like they're a badge of honor. At the same time, you want to understand and acknowledge rather than blame. You want to acknowledge the impact they've had on your life.
0: Yeah. I've heard the term toxic positivity recently. Really?
1: That's a great term.
0: Yes, because it is human. It's kind of the yin and yang. You need the good, you need the bad, you need the pain, just as much as the positivity, the happiness.
1: Yeah, I used to have a tapestry hanging in my office and I have a friend who's an interior designer and she walked in, she goes, where'd you get that? And I said, (laughs) I got it in Romanian when my college choir went there many years ago and she said, you need to take that down. It looks as old as it is. And so I hung it in another office of mine. (laughs) It was actually a very brightly colored tapestry, just sort of a rug, but there was a very prominent black streak that ran through it. I would ask people to look at that tapestry and tell me what color it was. And they said, well, it's bright, it's blue, it's mostly green, it's orange, it's bronze. No one ever called it black. Hmm. And so I would look at it and say, do you see the black in it? And they go, oh, well, now that I look at it, yes, I have. And yet what you were just saying a few minutes ago, I think is so apt because the black was a contrast to all the brighter yes. colors. And yet no one that I ever asked to look at it said, oh, that's a very dark, dismal tapestry. In fact, it was something they really loved looking at. And then they said, now you've pointed out the black to me. That's all I see. I said, <laughs> well, well, but now let's you know shift back into the glass half full. So right. I think that's what people are a little afraid of. In fact, how many people have I had say to me, if I start crying, I'll never stop.
0: Right.
1: I've never had a patient that couldn't stop crying. I mean, I've had patients Mm -hmm. who it took them a while to figure out where their pain came from and how they wanted to handle it and manage it, but I've never had someone stop crying.
0: That's good to know.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Or not be able to stop crying. I guess that I said that backwards, not be able to stop
0: crying. (laughs) Right, right. I guess for me, like all of the, the pain and the hardship I've gone through in my life, it helps me understand and fully feel the happiness, the light, the joy. I wouldn't know what that actually feels like unless I knew the
1: opposite. Well said. I think that not to get overly prosaic, but where there is light, there is shadow. And you see the shadow, but you understand that that is produced by the light. And so I think it's a very healthy way to live your life. It's certainly the kind of path that I've tried to, to walk. I actually self created a lot of the darkness in my life. <laughs> I didn't have a lot of other people to blame but myself. Oh goodness, it's just so much more balanced. I will say this as a added benefit. If you can do that, you can model that for your children. And I don't mean to make this too dismal a podcast, but <laughs> you know the suicide rates are going up exponentially and especially yes. with kids. And teenagers and young adults. And when a teen does that, out come the warnings against what you need to look for in classic depression, which is good. I mean, some of these children or teens or young adults do have classic depression. But for those who do not, who have perfect looking lives, and what they are struggling with is how to let anyone know that they have these vulnerabilities. Mm -hmm. And the best thing you can do as a parent is to model that for your kids. I'll never forget. And I won't share my son's stuff because he would be mad at me if I did that. But he went through something in college that he knew I had gone through because I talked about it. And it wasn't a good thing. <laughs> but he called me when he was so upset that that's what he had chosen to do. I must admit, at first, I had a typical mother reaction like, oh, I can't believe this. And he goes, mom, I let you know because I knew you'd understand and I just Mm -hmm. felt first ashamed of my response and then I said, yes, you're right. I know exactly what you're going through and we talked about it and I helped him come up with some ideas and strategies to handle his own beating himself up and fear actually about the ramifications of what he'd done. So the only reason he could come to me about that was because I had talked with him and been very open about some of my own struggles.
0: That's beautiful. How would someone recognize if they might identify with perfectly hidden depression? Like you said, they might have a lot of denial about it.
1: You betcha. Again, I think Probably the thing I've heard most often is, well, but I'm not a perfectionist because nothing I do is perfect. But if that's why I thought the traits were so important to line out. And actually, there is a questionnaire that I've devised. It's not empirically tested or researched. I'm not a researcher. I'm a clinician. It's on my website at DrMargaretRutherford.com. You can just put in questionnaire in the search module or whatever. And it's also on Psychology Today where I have a column. And you can take the test and it'll show where you are on the spectrum of the syndrome, meaning are, do you have just a few behaviors? Do you have a lot of behaviors? And again, it's not empirically validated, but it can give you a bit of a sense of how much of this is me and how much of it is just the way I prefer to live, but it's not problematic. Can we talk a little bit about this dangerous kind of perfectionism without getting too much into the research? Would that be okay?
0: Yes, Absolutely.
1: What research has shown is that there are three kinds of perfectionism. One is called self-oriented perfectionism, which again, sort of self-explanatory, is when you expect perfection from yourself. That can be a little on the dangerous side, but it's not the most dangerous. The second one is other-oriented perfectionism, which frankly means you just expect perfection from other people. And when I see this most, if you're a perfectionist, then often you can expect perfection from other people. And that's not actually a very gracious thing to do and it often can be problematic, doesn't lead as much to true danger. The third is called socially prescribed perfectionism. And what that means is that you feel like you're on a constant treadmill. You are always needing to meet, again, remember that voice of shame, needing to meet every expectation that people have of you. We're doing this podcast and if I identified with perfectly hidden depression, told me before we began, well, now this is going to be just recorded and I'm not going to get rid of some of the mistakes. And I've heard some of my mistakes. And if I was a, a self socially prescribed perfectionist, I would have gone, oh, let's stop. I need to redo that. Right, <laughs> right. Because I would have this idea that your expectation was that I would do an absolutely perfect job. And so it's people who just stay so pressured and so intensely focused on, I cannot disappoint point. I cannot fail because it means I'm a failure. It means that I'm not accomplished. It means that I have disappointed other people. And that is anathema to people who struggle with perfectly hidden depression. And these people who would be socially prescribed perfectionists. And that, Whitley, is the one that is the most tied and actually dangerously connected with suicidal thoughts. Wow. Because exhausted. That's what I was just going to say. It
0: sounds exhausting.
1: It is exhausting. That's one of the things I've seen in some of the patients that I've tried to help is that as they have realized that they have to unhook from this, the people who are demanding perfection are not necessarily going to unhook. But if they unhook, they find out I can be disappointing and I don't get fired and no one rejects me. In fact, I set this boundary. I do better. There's more clarity in the relationship. If I say to my supervisor who says, I hate to add this to you, but I know you can get it done. You can look at him and go, I don't think I can get it done or I need either more help or we need to back up the timeline. Those kinds of admissions of vulnerability which for someone with socially prescribed perfectionism is just a big no-no to set that boundary. Interestingly enough, I had a guy that I worked with who had been quite scared of doing this work. He felt like it would take all of his competence away that people would see him as weak and indecisive or not successful, but he bought in, much actually to my amazement. People had been asking to get off his team because he had to meet all the expectations of others, but he also was wanted perfection from other people.
0: Right, projecting that onto exactly, them. Exactly,
1: exactly. And he asked his supervisor to send him to some training on how to be a really good supervisor. And he incorporated some of the things of our work together as well as that training. He had to call me back in about six months to nine months. And he said, you wouldn't believe it. People are asking to get on my team now. Mm because I want to listen to what they're struggling with. I'm open to their struggles. I don't shame them for them anymore. And I'm open to them setting boundaries and saying, I can do this, but not this. And he said, I feel so much better as a person and as a supervisor because of this.
0: Yeah. Wow. Just wow.
1: Interesting thing about him was that he had had either two or three marriages that had failed he had children from two of them and the thing that really brought him to my office was the fact he said I can't do this again I can't do this to my children what he said was I never let anybody in hmm. I really never let any of my wives in they didn't know me I wanted sort of this superficial relationship and so guess what they all had affairs because I wasn't available and I need to learn how to be available and to not be so task oriented and accomplishment oriented.
0: So, do you find that with perfectly hidden depression, that people don't have the emotional availability as well as the emotional intelligence?
1: Hmm. Well, I think it's hard. One of the ladies, one of the women I worked with said, Oh, I don't have any trouble with anger. I get angry a lot. And we figured out, as many people who identify with perfectly hidden depression, she got angry when she didn't feel like she was in control. But the minute she began being more vulnerable with her husband. She actually had had a terrible, abusive relationship in college. After that point, she decided, I will never again not feel in control. And so she was very much in control of her relationship and just never talked about anything being hard. And they'd gone through years and years of infertility and he had been very sad. And she had just not been sad. She said, we're going to get pregnant. We're going to get pregnant. They never did. And they adopted. And she came in to see me because all of this grief came pounding at her door when she was actually parenting now her adopted child. Mm. As she began being willing to risk detangling some of this, she said, I'm just so scared of opening up to my husband because I don't know how to do that. And it's so frightening to me. And I said, just take it one small step at a time. And we would decide in a session, okay, you're going to talk to him about X. And she would go home and find her courage and say, I want to talk to you about X, Y, or Z. I don't want to say too many of the things in her life. It's a small world. And as he began to appreciate all that she had kept from him, he was so welcome. He was one of those people that was really eager for her to come more vulnerable with him. Now, again, there are people in relationships for whom that will not be welcome. That's going to bring some hard decisions. I had one woman who finally shared with her a Beyonce that she had an eating disorder. And he looked at her and said, well, I knew that and was very disdainful of her vulnerability. And she later broke off the engagement because she said, actually, he was cruel and he was abusive. And a lot of that she had never even allowed herself to see.
0: Why do health professionals often miss this depression in their patients, these traits?
1: Well, I was glad to hear from one of my fellow local clinicians. We got together when we still could. We went together at a Mm -hmm. holiday party and he looked at me and he said, we all know this can happen, but you've put a name to it. And he's a very experienced clinician. And so that was good to hear. And I do think there will be therapists out there who'll say, oh yeah, I know exactly what she's talking about, but it just takes time and some trust for the patient to begin to open up with me. However, Whitley, there are plenty of practitioners who keep their diagnostic criteria very much in their head as they're trying to diagnose people. And they will miss those people with perfectly hidden depression if they stick to the diagnostic criteria. Meaning there are two things that have to be present for you to be diagnosed with depression. That is depressed mood that's noticeable for a certain amount of time, depending on the level of depression. That's noticeable uh, either by the person or others. People who struggle with perfectly hidden depression are not going to meet that criteria, right? And also the other one is anhedonia, meaning you don't enjoy things you previously enjoyed. Well, that might be true, but it is certainly not anything that someone with perfectly hidden depression would admit. So they're going to say, oh, I love my life. I have a great life. I love my kids' activities and I'm proud of them and I'm this and that in the community. And so they won't meet that criteria either. They won't admit a sense of hopelessness. They won't admit a sense of helplessness. You know, maybe their sleep is screwed up, but they'll usually feign that off as, oh, well, I don't get much sleep. They're not going to reveal any of that, at least at first. The clinician needs to be aware, I'm trying to get the word out, that if you're aware that there is another presentation of depression that looks like the perfect looking life, then maybe you'll ask further questions. Mm -hmm. There's another story in the book that I tell of someone who actually went to a psychiatrist who definitely experienced perfectly hidden depression and took the typical depression inventory. One of the questions is, do you feel hopeless? And the guy said, no, don't feel hopeless. Actually did, but because he struggles with perfectly hidden depression, he wouldn't say so. Right. Probably not on an inventory. He tried to commit suicide three weeks later. And the psychiatrist actually saw his name on the hospital roster and came to see him. And the psychiatrist was a little miffed and said, But you didn't say you were depressed when you were in my office. The patient looked at him and said, You didn't ask me the right questions. Mm -hmm. If you'd asked me, Would you reveal it if you felt hopeless? then I would also have said, No. And that way you would know what you were dealing with. I want to alert therapists, clinicians, psychiatrists about the actual reality of this. I'm sure I misdiagnosed people too. I'm sure that there were people in my office, in fact, in the very first part of the book is someone who almost died, not because I had diagnosed her with anxiety, but she did try to die by suicide and I had no clue she was depressed. I thought she was a worrier and just needed help with anxiety. I'm sure I missed it. I may miss it again. I hope not. But when you are aware that this other kind of depression can exist, then perhaps you'll go further and not just stick to the rigid diagnostic categories. And I've been very heartened. I think heartened is a word that I've gotten feedback from people who said to me, my therapist gave me this book. That's really made me feel good.
0: (laughs) Yeah, yeah, that is amazing. It can be hard because when the client comes in and they're not telling you everything or they're holding things back or don't realize those things for themselves, you can only do so much. So by knowing the things, you can hopefully do better and ask the right questions.
1: It'd be like if there was some kind of presentation of diabetes where whatever blood tests or whatever you do to diagnose diabetes would not be the case. That wouldn't be true. Obviously, a seasoned clinician or a medical doctor needs to know that. Oh, well, sometimes diabetes can look like this. I'm just saying the same thing for depression. But sometimes this kind of depression can look like if they fit a lot of those 10 traits, then guess what? You may have someone in front of you that really does need your help. just they need your help in a different way.
0: And they don't know why they need that help or how to ask for that help.
1: Only one person has come into my office, even people who have read things about perfectly hidden depression and said, I read something that you, <laughs> that you <laughs> wrote about perfectly hidden depression and that's why I'm here, that I remember I've had one person. They kind of came in surreptitiously not to say, oh, yes, this is why I'm here, but oh, yeah, I got your name out of the Google or whatever. And then eventually they say, well, yeah, it was kind of your work on perfectly hidden <laughs> depression. <laughs> <laughs> made me come. So,
0: What are treatment strategies for perfectly hidden depression?
1: There are five stages, and I will say the book is comprised of, it's obviously describing this dynamic or this syndrome, but I've got over 60 exercises to help people guide themselves through this work. They are not easy. They start out with tiny little baby steps. They grow gradually more mm, just emotionally difficult, I think, probably, but also, I hope, more and more enlightening. I had someone about a month ago say, well, I skipped all those beginning exercises Mm -hmm. and just went on to the trauma timeline. She goes, gosh, I was just overwhelmed. And I said, that's because you didn't do the initial exercise. It's about trying to really become accustomed and more a little easier with yourself about recognizing your pain, recognizing your whatever trauma might be in your life. And again, not blaming anyone, but acknowledging it and then taking those small steps. Now, I do often say in the book, if there's a lot of trauma in your background, you may not be able to do this work by yourself. You may need a therapist to guide you and see a, a clinician who's very experienced with trauma. And I say constantly, if this is getting too hard, if this is getting overwhelming, then please seek actual therapy. But there are the five stages, which I'll go through quickly. Consciousness, which is just becoming aware that your perfectionism is a problem for you. And that takes some mindfulness work. Commitment, commitment is hard for perfectionists because they want to get it all done in like two weeks. Or they start with projects that are far too big for them. They don't take baby steps like the woman who jumped to the trauma timeline. The third stage is confrontation. You can be following rules that really no longer are constructive for you, but that you learned you had to or should or ought to or must or must always follow. That whole stage is about figuring out what those rules are, both spoken and unspoken, being able to begin altering them. The fourth stage is connection. All the stages are hard. This is probably the most complicated where you're actually trying to go back in your life and figure out what was traumatic in your life, what was difficult, and what was good. What were the things that helped you positively to become the person you are, but also the things that happened that really hurt you and that, again, you've had to push away because you've never felt ready to acknowledge them and deal with them. So this can take a long time. In fact, I talked with a woman this morning who says, this trauma timeline is taking quite a while. I said, it should. She's really using the book very well. The last one is change. What I've discovered as a therapist, Whitley, is that insight is a wonderful thing. Insight can really help you connect the dots and it can give you a sense of a path. But insight does not bring you hope. What brings you hope is changing your behavior. And so that stage is all about, okay, now you've learned all this. You understand it. You've looked at your rules. You've looked at your trauma timeline. Now, what needs to change? And what I do in the book is take all those 10 traits and come up with ways, hopefully creative, almost playful ways, mm-hmm. that you can begin to. Confront those habits and choices and make others. Because when you put it into practice, that's when you feel hopeful. The rest right. of the book is on how it might change your relationships, how you distinguish it from mental illness itself, and then, of course, what's next. Yeah. So <laughs> I will say that fitting all that into one book was a lot. Mm-hmm. And so I'm hoping that people who do want to investigate it or look into it will understand. I got a review on Goodreads that said, oh, I loved the first three chapters of the book. I felt like she was talking to me. But then started the treatment part and it was felt like I was in a therapy session. It slowed down and I thought, yep, that's exactly right. (laughs) That's exactly what I meant it to be. (laughs) So even though she didn't like it very much, actually she said she'd read it out of curiosity, but she didn't really think of herself as fitting that particular syndrome. So I think people who do will find that work difficult, but will acknowledge that, wow, this feels really important.
0: That sounds absolutely amazing. To kind of wrap up, what do you want listeners to take away from this episode? What would you say to someone struggling with this?
1: Let me say this. I've had probably more than half of the people that I've treated for this syndrome have told me at the end of treatment or somewhere in the middle of treatment that they had the plan To end their lives when they came in. And so this is important. This is important for doctors to know. This is important for clinicians to know. This is important for teachers to know. I've had several parents contact me and say, This was my son or this was my daughter, and I missed it. I missed it. And they died by suicide. I'm not trying to make this too doom and gloom, but there are some really dangerous things going on. Social media is making all of us want to have the perfect looking life, and Mm -hmm. we feel bad if we don't. And so that's not helping. All our times on, on iPhones and the isolativeness that that's causing is not helping. I really want to stress to people that if any of this makes sense to you, if you don't want to buy my book, that's fine. But <laughs> go to my website at DrMargaretRutherford.com and start reading or go to my podcast, which is called The Self-Work Podcast with Dr. Margaret Rutherford, and look for the episodes that are about perfectly kind depression. They're sort of interspersed throughout. The book is very inexpensive even the paperback on Amazon is like 12 bucks uh, or you can get it from New Harbinger if you don't want it on your Amazon record. So that will come discreetly to you. It's also available on as an ebook, which is also more discreet. And then it actually is now in audiobook form too. So wow, awesome! if you want to contact me, I might as well give my email out again. <laughs> Ask Dr. Margaret at Dr. Margaret that is confidential. And I'd be more than happy to talk with you more about it, at least as much as I can over the internet.
0: Thank you for sharing that. I I definitely recommend if anyone has even an inkling that they want to reach out, do so. Get the book. I will have all the links to all of those things where you can find Dr. Margaret. So, I close my episodes with little song recommendations. So what is your song that resonates with you? I
1: loved this question. No one's ever asked me this. (laughs) I thought about it this morning. And again, we sort of already mentioned my rug and the tapestry. I love the song Tapestry by Carole King. You can tell I'm a child of the 70s, (laughs) (laughs) but I love her music. And that song particularly meant a lot to me at many times in my life, actually.
0: Thank you. Thank you for being here. I really appreciate you sharing with us today and I learned so much. I'm just like soaking in all of your
1: words.
0: (laughs) Beautiful. That's
1: great. Thank you. So I'm just very honored. Thank you.
0: (laughs) All right. That's all we have for you guys today. Thanks for listening and tune in next time. I hope this podcast left you feeling empowered, better understood, and less alone in this crazy thing called life. If you like what you hear, leave a rating or review and share it with your friends. Thanks for listening and tune in next time.